and we are live once again youtube what is happening uh today i'm going to be reviewing uh something so i'm gonna be reviewing uh something that uh, a lot of people have been seeing over the past couple of years over the past couple of years when traders tell us one of the major trends in the real estate market and I definitely just want to uh, react to this video by CNBC as to why or come to some sort of conclusion as to why so many luxury apartments are popping up in the United States. Now, before uh, we begin this video, a lot of you who are new to the channel or may not know, um, I am actually a licensed real estate agent in Florida, right? So I will be providing my input from a real estate professional perspective, as well as just giving, you know, traditional um, input just from watching this video. Let's see, you know, what these people got to say. The U.S. is in a rental housing crisis. So we pay 3060 per month. If I'm really honest, I don't think it's a very good value for money. Homebuilders believe the sector is already in a recession, and experts are calling out laws that make building expensive. We are definitely in a recession. There's 100% facts. 40% of the cost of multifamily development is in regulation. We have to do something about that if we're going to build more housing. Developers have a really hard job, and they regularly work magic. In major cities like Washington, D.C., developers are working with limited space. Most parts of this country have exclusionary zoning. The only thing you can build there is single-family homes, often on pretty large lots. But in the parts of town where big buildings are allowed, you see a lot of cranes going up. Those cranes are going to build high-rise luxury apartments. And in fact, this year, we're going to see some of the largest number of apartments delivered in the luxury sector than in history, literally. Why are there so many new luxury apartments? And what could the government do to get more affordable housing onto the market? When it comes to city real estate, the biggest luxury is location. If you can just walk from your apartment into a metro station and, and head on about your day, that's pretty great. Here's a look inside of one new development in the city. Right now, we are in the ballpark district of Washington, D.C., one of the emerging neighborhoods that is downtown adjacent. And this neighborhood has gone through a tremendous transformation over the last 20 years as part of an overall plan to create an extraordinary place. This building was completed in uh, 2020. And this is the Kelvin Apartments, uh, which is uh, 312 apartments over about 60,000 square feet of retail adjacent to our, our sister building, which is the NV Condo, which is 127 condos. This development is currently valued at roughly $230 million. Transit-oriented development creates the best outcomes overall because of the proximity. To um, now, what I will say is... um. As somebody who's uh, 23 years old, uh, I will note that um, a lot of 23-year-olds um, and under or even older, like 25 and whatnot, a lot of us can't necessarily afford to buy houses um, like our parents were able to when they were our ages. Um, I mean, unless, you know, you're unless you're already making six figures or, you know, you have a wonderful career or a wonderful business that you started to where, you know, your income is like that. A lot of us cannot afford. And in fact, even in my real estate business, it's very hard for me to get clientele 
that's around my age because the simple fact is can nobody afford it. Even when I've been traveling to Miami, some of the richest people, some of the richest people my age um, stay in luxury apartments because it's more affordable. Um, also, they all tend to roommate and stay in multifamily housing units. To jobs, the proximity to educational opportunities, but it's also the most difficult. You're creating not only deep foundations for underground parking, you are uh, often uh, building over uh, metro lines and, and, and transit lines. You're also taking care of, of uh, the neighborhood in terms of its aesthetic. Living in this lifestyle does cost a premium for the renter. Two bedroom apartments in this building can rent for over $3,000. Single bedrooms can rent for over $2,000. Miami for sure. Perhaps more surprisingly, those prices are technically affordable for 40% of the households in Washington, D.C. Right. And this pattern where the top 40% of earners can afford housing while others struggle to find affordable housing can be found in cities across the U.S. So you often see new housing branded as luxury in part because it's new. I will say in my personal experience, I've seen pretty high quality, affordable, subsidized housing that could compete with any luxury housing. I've also seen pretty old, tired housing still branded as luxury that you know, wasn't the greatest housing out there. Here's another building that was completed in 2009. Well, luxury, it's definitely not. It may be a little bit up standards, like a little bit. The building has about 300 units and is worth over $129 million. Appearances-wise, and from the outside, this flat looks amazing. It is amazing, and there's so much light and the location and everything. But then when you actually live here, there's so many tiny things. Um, in total, it's 30 maintenance requests in a year and five months. So it's quite a bit. Days before this interview, a malfunctioning dishwasher flooded parts of Carolyn's apartment. Building management brought in industrial fans to dry the space. It's yeah, 75 decibels. I measured it. And it's quite tiring, like your head becomes like this. Many other tenants have raised concerns with the build quality in this complex, citing thin walls and repeated issues with water and other infrastructure. In a statement to CNBC, the property manager of this building said that occasional maintenance requests will be resolved as quickly as possible. Every home builder has a list of complaints. Now, what I will say is um, when you are owning a luxury apartment that has an HOA, um, a lot of times what you're paying into that HOA, they will cover. So you don't necessarily have to come out of pocket uh, too much money as you would own an actual uh, traditional residential property. And as, and I don't know, I don't know if I've done a video on here yet, but um, when you buy a traditional real estate property, uh, a lot of people don't ever factor in, you know, having some money to put towards, you know, maintenance, uh, getting something repaired, like in a house where there's a water heater, a HVAC system, even a roof, like, bro, those things are a pretty penny to the average person who's barely making $50,000, $60,000 a year. Um, even at that income, you are barely surviving. So um, that's another reason why uh, a lot of people, they kind of prefer living, a lot of younger people prefer living in a luxury environment, especially if it has some type of HOA because, you know, you can call maintenance to come handle whatever you need to handle. And over and over time, it will be a lot cheaper because at the end of the day, you're already paying into an HOA or a, 
of some sort. And property management usually take care of that as seen in this video above. Every, you know, landlord in a multifamily apartment, you can Google and find, a, you know, complaints against literally any landlord out there. But I've been to a lot of these communities and those communities are beautiful and they have all kinds of amenities like a swimming pool and a gym. And because these are large scale communities, that means that the landlord has a large scale service, usually on site. Some of what's happening here is related to changes in the real estate business nationwide. What we've seen in the last 10 to 15 years is that developers used to uh, get capital, develop a property, and maybe sell it as condos or have it as rentals, and they would hold on to the property. But right now, we're seeing real estate developers with a different model, where they're building a property then to quickly sell it off uh, to a real estate investment trust. So it's sort of build to sell as opposed to build and hold. When you build a property and then sell it to a real estate investment trust that is controlled by Wall Street, it puts a lot of pressure on the tenants. Some of the rental. Yeah, the lack of affordable housing has created a surge in rentals. That's very true. Um, another thing that I uh, another thing that I'm also predicting and also I have been seeing in the past couple of months uh while you know uh america is kind of wiping out the middle class one thing that i have seen in this uh like in these in this real estate market is that a lot of corporations are starting to buy up a lot of the uh single family houses or buy up apartment complexes so eventually over time i do think we're going to get to a point to where in real estate uh, majority of these properties are going to be owned not necessarily by individuals, but corporate large corporations. Uh, I know com companies like BlackRock have started to invest into uh, single family homes. Uh, I remember Zillow at one point was buying up a whole bunch of properties. I know they ended up having to sell them because uh, it didn't, it, their return on investment didn't work out. But a lot of these corporations are starting to buy up a lot of the residential real estate and they can necessarily they can do it because the average person these days just can't afford uh to buy property crisis that we have in terms of unaffordable rental market right now is somewhat related to this new model of build to sell and sell to wall street but that's the high end of the market when it comes to more affordable housing the government typically plays a much bigger role. If you look back historically, there's always some balance of public and private involvement. We run into challenges when whoever's owning and running the housing either isn't well capitalized or isn't properly motivated. Now the government's using a tax credit to encourage more building. So the low-income housing tax credit is a treasury program. Um, it is a capital subsidy program. It helps to provide money to build the building. It does not provide operating assistance. This is a tried and true program which has uh, brought private capital into the marketplace to build low to moderate income housing. It is our flagship program right now. Developers have built or preserved more than 3 million affordable homes with this tool. They finance their projects by selling the government issued credits to investors. The investors provide the financing and in turn get a tax break. More recently, Blackstone has gotten involved in um, creating a subsidiary called April Housing, which purchased 83,000 units of LIHTC. 
a bipartisan group of lawmakers have called for an expansion of this program. Across the country, Americans are faced with unaffordable housing. The cost burdens for middle-income families are starting to increase as well. So teachers, firefighters, and others are getting priced out of the market. Having a, a, a program, a credit program that helps build housing for that segment of the population will not only help them continue to be successful, but it will also take a little bit of pressure off the low-income side of the, of the equation as well. And others say that despite its success, the program falls short of the country's needs. The low-income tax credit idea is a good idea, but in the end, is the developer, the investors that benefit from it. Not to brag, but I just switched to Verizon. Wow. And I got to choose the phone I wanted for free. Not Now, what I will say, no, I was at the plan. Now, now, while that is true, uh, this is why I typically um, teach on my um, my channel. I, this is why I typically teach on my channels. Like, we're kind of getting to a point to where in America and in this world, uh, you have to learn how to be an entrepreneur, even if it's part time. You have to learn how to always be creating some type of wealth or in bringing in income, regardless of what's going on. Because eventually, it's going to get to a point to where you really can't depend on the government. Um, if anything, the government is just going to let you, you know, uh, <laughs> suffer and live off the bare minimum. So you really have to do for yourself, and that's actually what I've uh, started doing with my businesses and whatnot. Uh, I actually have a. a, a aromatherapy brand um to where you know i sell perfume on the street and then also you know you guys know i do real estate and then also have a kind of it consulting firm to where you know i kind of consult businesses on using certain technology to help their businesses run a lot smoother um but at some point you, you guys have to you know if you, if you start a business if you get another high-paying job i definitely encourage you to Build up some type of wealth. They don't need necessarily have to be a business, but to where you're straight. That makes sense. But let's keep it going. Because situations like these are ridiculous, but it's the reality of what we're living in these days. More popular around the country. Here's how it works. A developer wants to come in and build a 100-unit building. Uh, the zoning will only allow for an 80-unit building. The locality would allow for that additional 100-unit building, which obviously makes the, the, the deal more profitable uh, in exchange for 10 of those units or 15 of those units being set aside for low to moderate income people. IZ-type programs are completely local. They differ fairly significantly across the country. Organizers say these ideas need more work. Most of the inclusionary zoning units are either too small and they are definitely unaffordable. The inclusionary zoning doesn't really include the economic conditions of the people who are threatened with displacement. The design to benefit people who have the resources, who are in the quote-unquote marketplace to take the money and run when things start falling apart. This wave of publicly subsidized building is a new version of an old story. In New York City, a WPA housing demolition project is underway, which will greatly improve the living conditions of families of moderate means. You know, if you go back many decades, urban renewal was, uh, you know, kind of translated as it was code for, hey, let's knock down 
places where poor people live and build other things. And that has a you know pretty unpleasant history in a lot of ways. We still have uh, you know loan programs with the name urban renewal on them. Now, when we think about it, it is about preservation of existing affordable housing. Um, in some communities, it means change. Uh, we started our, our company working um, in downtown adjacent neighborhoods where there had been disinvestment for decades. Um, and so in Washington, D.C., that was the 14th Street Corridor and the 8th Street Corridor, both ravaged by the riots in 68. Even the nation's capital was seared. In a place like Shaw U Street, you had a lot of affordable housing. A lot of that affordable housing was built right after the unrest in 1968, after Martin Luther King was killed. Some of the properties that were there, some of them were public housing, other than were subsidized buildings, have been bought by developers who do luxury real estate. And this trend is just moving to the Sun Belt cities. In 2022, apartment building went gangbuster, 40-year high activity. So we still have a residual shortage of housing. So before 5 million, now 4 million in my estimation. U.S. home builders declared a recession in August of 2022. That could slow down the growth of new supply in cities. While we had steady building opportunity and starts uh, before the pandemic, and in part during the pandemic, um, we had a lot of delays. That bottleneck has opened up, and we are expecting to see a little bit of a, a softening in the market here in 2023, but that's going to correct itself, we think, pretty quickly. The more supply comes on the market, the less pressure there is on pricing. We do have um, um, issues with uh, capital um, in the sense that there's an increase in interest rates that has decreased the amount of lending that's happening as we try to slow down the economy. We need to make sure that we're creating uh, the regulatory as well as the financial conditions to be able to produce the housing that's needed. The Biden-Harris administration released its Housing Supply Action Plan in 2022. Their goal is to close the supply shortfall in five years. But when you get to affordable housing, we need to be providing some additional capital and or rental assistance to help make that housing affordable to the people who need it most. And that's where you get more rules, but also real benefit from that public-private partnership. For tenants, more assistance can't come soon enough. If I could, I would have already left. Um, there's, of course, the economic side of things. There is no magic bullet here. It has taken us decades to get to this point, and it's going to take us some decades to get out of it. The trick is how do you do development that's inclusive, that's equitable, uh, that is luxury so that developers can make a profit, but also fit middle-income and working-class people. The marketplace is structured not to house certain people. We need to admit that. That's correct. Now, here's my thoughts. Um, for the most part, um, I really just think, you know, uh, first-time homebuyers are people who are you know, my age or was or of sort and trying, you know, trying to get their life together and this, that, and the third. Um, I don't think you should necessarily be focused on um trying to buy a single family house. Do what you have to do. Um, if anything, I would focus on creating income. Um, that's really what I'm focusing on is um I'm focusing on income. And you know, it's been working out for me, you know, creating cash flow, consistent cash flow. And currently I don't have, I'm not employed. <laughs> so, <laughs> yeah, so, yeah. But 
yeah, make sure you guys like and subscribe this video and share. Uh, let me know what you guys' thoughts are in the comments as well, too.